This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, and welcome to JCMS Author Interviews. I'm Kirk Barber, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Patrick Fleming. We're looking at psoriasis guidelines. He and his co-authors have compared the management guidelines for psoriasis in America, Britain, Canada, and Europe. In my interview with Patrick, I'll be trying to sort out the differences between all of our countries and if that is anything meaningful to us as clinicians. Welcome, Patrick, and thank you very much for joining me today for a conversation. With respect to your article that we published in the March-April JCMS, the article is entitled Comparison of Management Guidelines for Moderate to Severe Plaque Psoriasis, a Review of Phototherapy, Systemic Therapies, and Biologic Agents. So why did you and your co-authors think this was important for us as clinicians to understand? Well, first off, thank you for having me. In terms of why we chose this project to focus on, we've noticed there's been an explosion in the last couple of years of multiple guidelines for managing psoriasis, in particular in uh, Europe, where they have several sets of guidelines currently in use. I also think it's important to be able to compare regional differences of guidelines. I think you can uh, pick up some interesting tidbits in the different practice landscapes across uh, a variety of uh, uh, segments of the population. So it was a significant review of the literature, uh, and and it sounds like uh, as Canadians we had better update our guidelines sometime as we seem to have the oldest guideline of this uh, quartet, if you will. Yeah, I think surprisingly, the American and Canadian guidelines were a little bit dated um, at the time of publication. I know there are some efforts on the way to update the Canadian guidelines now, which is great. I think the fact that a lot of the guidelines um, lacked some of the more novel therapies, so the interleukin-23 inhibitors, uh, some of the interleukin-17s weren't as well elaborated on, uh, really um, helps uh, euclidate the fact that Guidelines should be becoming living documents, similar to how up-to-date functions and other online repositories function. I think the old way of looking at the guidelines every five years probably isn't going to work um, much longer in the future, especially in psoriasis, where there's been an explosion of novel therapies coming out over the last decade. It's very difficult, I think, for the authors of guidelines to be able to keep up with all the new therapeutics on the horizon. So um, in the context of keeping up with guidelines, the electronic versions of these should be easy to update over time um, rather than sticking to the written ones. I agree. I I think there's still a lot of value in having a a definitive published guideline in a manuscript format, but I think in the future, one thing that might be nice is for journals to look at ways of having an online database-style repository similar to other... um, uh, databases like UpToDate, where you could update these guidelines maybe on a yearly basis, and maybe do a full publication every couple of years um, for a wider dissemination. All right, so let's go into the content of your manuscript and look at um, you know, give us a little idea on the on the methods you used, and then we can move right into the results and um, let us know the clinical relevance of what you discovered 
um, and how, as clinicians, we might use this uh, manuscript to guide our therapy. Yeah, so I mean, the first thing to talk about the methodology is to highlight the team behind the guideline development. Um, it was led by two uh, excellent medical students who had a lot of research experience in their own right, um, Arvin and Aaron. And they did most of the heavy lifting, most of the literature reviews. I'm also very team focused when I lead research projects. So we had ensured that we could have three key opinion leaders involved um, in the development of the manuscript. And that was uh, Dr. Gulliver from Newfoundland, Dr. Lind uh, from Markham, and Dr. Shear from Toronto. And these three individuals have a wealth of international experience as experts in psoriasis. Uh, also key to the team was Dr. Catherine Sibold. And I recruited her because she's not only a dermatologist, she's also a very experienced uh, hospital pharmacist as well. So having that team together really made the article come together uh, much more easily than it could have been. In terms of the specific methods we use, we wanted to do a critical comparison of the guidelines. Um, so we did a very comprehensive search of PubMed, looking for the most updated guidelines we could access. But because it was comparative and critical, we also sought out some of the key randomized trials and key meta-analysis. And we peppered this throughout the article to help enrich some of the data and to help add some context to some of the recommendations in the guidelines themselves. This was also quite important as well for looking at therapeutics that were not yet in the guidelines. And I thought it was important that we should mention these, that they're on the horizon and will likely be in future iterations of these uh, clinical guidelines. Did you have a cutoff date? We did it as updated as possible. So up until the time of final submission, we were searching for updated guidelines. Um, we didn't have a specific cutoff date. We wanted to keep it as dynamic as possible. So this would be up to twenty-eight, the end of 2018. Yes, exactly. Then. Yeah. So tell us, uh, lead us through the manuscript and highlight the things that you found of significance. Uh, it's very extensive, and the, the table's great because it goes through levels of evidence and recommendations for each of the individual guidelines. Yeah. Uh, so very comprehensive. Yeah, so um, we divided our, guide, our article into a few key sections. So in section one, we reviewed phototherapy data, uh, primarily focusing on narrow band, as it's the most uh, commonly used version of phototherapy in practice today. We also looked at um, the use of eczema laser and some other technologies for uh, psoriasis management. And um, in our guidelines, uh, we also briefly touched upon uh, PUVA, which is a slightly older version of phototherapy that according to most guidelines today, it's not recommended as first line. Because as you know, there's a high carcinogenic potential with extended use. Although I'll interject as a as a prior PUVA user, it was spectacular therapy. Yeah, my limited experience with PUVA is that it works spectacularly, but after a couple hundred treatments, people do get the PUVA lentigenes and they're prone to squamous cells, unfortunately. Yes. Um, the next section of our article focused on some of the conventional therapies and novel oral small molecules. So we spent a lot of time going through methotrexate because it is still the most commonly prescribed systemic therapy for psoriasis. It's first line in most countries. Uh, it's first line for most practitioners as well. 
especially with the current uh, payer model in Canada for both public and private insurance coverage. And based on some of the Danish studies we reviewed, uh, it still does have an acceptable safety profile and clinicians are quite familiar with using it. Uh, within the uh, conventional therapy section, we also looked into cyclosporin. Uh, as you know, we use this quite often as a short-term rescue therapy. Um, interestingly, one of the differences between the guidelines was that in the Canadian guidelines, they recommended a maximal use of 12 weeks at a given time. Um, however, in some of the other guidelines, including the American, British, and European, they allowed up to one to two years. So um, uh, just if I can interject, uh, um, amongst your group, when you're discussing the guidelines, what would be the Canadian convention if it's not part of the Canadian guideline? Is there a difference in the way uh, people use uh, cyclosporin um, in comparison to the guideline in Canada? You know, I have a lot of patients on cyclosporin, for, some of them for severe psoriasis. Uh, for me personally, 12 weeks is a little bit short. If I'm putting someone on cyclosporin, they're often quite sick. I think 12 weeks is a minimum and I would have them on that. And then I would start to slowly taper them. I think experience depends on where you're practicing as well and what your patient population is like. Uh, I use cyclosporin intermittently as well, often for people that are having significant flares of the disease often for transitioning um, to more uh, to therapies that I know we can use longer. Um, so I, I too am surprised by the 12 weeks. So not surprised, I knew it was there, but, but the idea is I don't, I don't think it's the convention. It, it might be the guideline, but I doubt if you ask the whole bunch of p experienced people with uh, cyclosporin, 12 weeks would be, yeah. really? You know, and they'd want to use the longer Sort of yeah, it's quite it. short. I think for most people, six months is probably what they aim for, hmm. if possible. Yeah. And that moves us on nicely into acetretin, um, which is not recommended as a rule as a first-line therapy in the guidelines. However, just to seek my own experience, I've often used it with cyclosporin as a transition agent for people who are having severe flares of pustular disease, and it's been somewhat effective in that. The next molecule in the section on a conventional therapies as a premolast, which is actually fairly novel. Unfortunately, it was not included in most of the guidelines we examined, except for the British guidelines mentioned it very briefly. And I think this speaks to the fact that guidelines have a hard time keeping up sometimes with the many therapies coming out in the marketplace now. So before you move on then into this, the, this section three, let me return you back to methotrexate for a mm -hmm. second um, because we all use it so much and it's not until biologics came along that we really started to look at methotrexate uh, critically. And it, when it was our only therapy, we thought, wow, this is great. But now that we have all of these other treatments, we're learning that there are limitations not only to its effectiveness but to its, uh, to its use over the long term. When I look at the guidelines... I look. I I thought. Uh, okay. Well, uh, we'll look at the American guidelines, and they still really look like they're using the quote test dose of uh, five milligrams at, as their initial uh, dose. And I think uh, that would be the old Canadian standard. And as Canadians, we've probably uh, well. I think most of us have moved on to uh, start patients at fifteen milligrams. Uh, would that be the consensus uh, of thought from your group? Exactly. As well? Yeah. So most in our group would start with. 
15 milligrams and then slowly taper up or taper down if necessary. The American guidelines were a little bit stuck in the past from my perspective with giving this small test dose, um, which we know would not be effective for psoriasis. I think it also, your comment also speaks to the fact that, you know, even when I was training not very long ago, we thought methotrexate was great as an agent for psoriasis. But the more and more we read about it and when we compare the safety profile of methotrexate to the biologics, especially the newer agents coming out, um, you realize how much uh, we've advanced in the field over the last five or 10 years. And, and for follow-up, the liver biopsy story. Exactly. I mean, we keep revisiting it and revisiting it and revisiting it. And um, I, I think in my practice, at any rate, the FibroScan has really replaced that Procedure. Yes, in my practice as well, people who I've inherited on methotrexate, they're generally seen by a hepatologist, and we have great hepatologists. We have partnerships within the community who are very happy to help us uh, co-manage patients who have been on long-term methotrexate. I think the fact that with methotrexate, you have to do such frequent lab monitoring is a burden, especially for the patient who has to have multiple invasive and needle draws. It's also a burden for dermatologists who are following reams and reams and reams of laboratory investigations. When there are agents out there which do not necessarily require any long-term blood work monitoring, like many of the um, biological agents. Okay, well, let's uh, move on. Let's let's look at your section three group. Yeah, so in section three, it's one of our briefer sections. We uh, looked at some of the non-conventional therapies that are used. These are mostly mentioned um, in the American guidelines, and it would include things that are very off-label for psoriasis. So medications like azathioprine, fumaric acid esters, hydroxyurea, mycophenolimophetol, and sodium, uh, as well as tacrolimus. These aren't agents we would typically use in the Canadian landscape. That being said, I think it's valuable to mention them because I do have many patients with a severe psoriatic arthritis whose psoriasis is well controlled on these agents. So it's nice knowing that they do have some efficacy, even if it's based on small case series. And, and you know, I come from an era that was pre-biologic, and you, you know, sometimes you had to go to these agents because nothing else seemed to be working. And nowadays, in this, in the age of biologics, and Really, the the, the the generous, compassionate use programs that we see from the companies that are making biologic agents, that uh, these these um, um, these lesser known and used therapies, I think, will become even even lesser known and lesser used over time. Exactly, and I think in some cases, even the insurance providers have realized now that the biologic is not going to be something that's used rarely, it's going to become the standard of care for managing psoriasis in yeah. Canada, in North America, and internationally. I think it's very difficult to justify having a patient on an agent with lower efficacy, with a higher burden of laboratory investigations, with a higher burden of multiple side effects and monitoring, where you're taking it you know, every week compared to taking it once every couple of months. Okay, well, on to section four, the uh, sort of highlight of the piece. Yeah, so section in section four, we reviewed biological therapies. Most of the guidelines we had, all of them, did have um, recommendations for TNF inhibitors. 
and interleukin-12-23 inhibitors. They've been on the market for many years now. They have a great a track record overall based on the review of, our, of the literature. I think they're also benefited by the fact that the FDA has become much more stringent over the last 10 years. So we have very robust, high-quality randomized data in multiple phases of studies. In many of these cases, we have multiple phase three studies uh, to prove efficacy with quite stringent endpoints. So when you're looking at the quality of the data for the newer agents compared to some of the older agents like methotrexate and cyclosporine, you can really see a stark difference in terms of the raw data and the power behind those numbers. Um, interestingly, uh, many of the very new agents weren't included in the guidelines. So unfortunately, there wasn't any mention of gaselkumab, uh, nor was there any mention of uh, the uh, pegylated um, uh, TNF inhibitor, which is recently approved for psoriasis uh, in Canada. And of, uh, as of today, actually, we have rizikizumab. Yeah, so I got the news um, today. To add to our IL-20. IL exactly. Yeah. So another example of how the guidelines sometimes have a hard time keeping up with um, all of the new mm -hmm. science coming out. When you looked at the um, guidelines for these biologic agents, it struck me that it was pretty, it, it got more uniform. And, uh, and to your point... It's because of the robustness of the data. Exactly. And, and there's just no, there's no reason to differ other than with regard to patient access and, and uh, related to cost. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So with the newer agents, if you have a couple thousand patients in a trial, you know the safety profile, you know the optimal dosing in many cases, uh, at least for the vast majority of patients, and you know the optimal monitoring. I think when you're basing your recommendations on case series or very small, um, moderately to poorly designed randomized trials for the older agents, it, you can see how there has to be some wiggle room based on the local population, the local patient characteristics, and local practice patterns. I look at the British guidelines and their criteria for response at PASI 75 and PASI 50. And, and I reflect on the fact that nowadays, really, if you're not playing in the PASI 90 to 100 uh, group, you, we're not really thinking much about those older agents. So it'll be interesting to see how those guidelines change. I, I agree. Uh, I think it's a great error uh, to be in because we have so many options to help our patients who have psoriasis, who've suffered for many years, sometimes decades, with suboptimal, topical, and other oral medications. And now we have some great agents with good safety profiles, uh, excellent data, with the chance of giving them maybe not a cure, but perhaps a functional cure in a sense. And the agents are so good that it seems now that it is the regulatory bodies that, are, that uh, look after cost that are actually dictating our practice guidelines. Exactly. I, I think if somebody has a disease that interferes with their quality of life, that has a higher risk of cardiac disease, a higher risk of depression, a higher risk of anxiety, and a higher risk of uh, losing work, losing sleep, if there's an agent that can get them clear or 99% clear, that's safe, that's convenient, I don't think cost should be a barrier for those individuals, especially when we live in 
a wealthy, westernized, democratic country with a strong economy and a strong public health system. Guidelines will still be uh, useful to defend those decisions. I agree. And I, I think in future iterations of guidelines, I'd like to see a perhaps a bigger focus on the impact on the individual patient and perhaps even having patients involved in developing guidelines. This has been done in some other research bodies. So for the British Journal, of, uh, British Medical Journal, they actually encourage patient involvement in the design and conduct of uh, clinical trials and other research projects. And I think that would be a great initiative to make standard across all guidelines is that patient advocacy groups, individual patients, members of the public have some engagement in helping produce those documents. Because those guidelines are quite important in both advocacy for patients, with insurers, uh, with the health, Ministry of Health as well. So uh, on that note, I would refer uh, our listeners to JCMS. We did a, uh, an article on how to develop clinical uh, practice guidelines. Um, and one of the features was these patient-reported outcomes and involving patients in the trials is going to be demanded. And so we, you should start to get on board early when, we, when, we, when we're thinking of creating guidelines. I'm really looking forward to the next guideline project I'm involved in where we can involve patients and have their experiences enrich our understanding of both the treatment and the impact and burden of disease on, on their lives. Well, thank you, Patrick, for taking the time to bring this uh, uh, very valuable uh, manuscript to life for us. Uh, and I look forward to your next publication. Thank you very much. Dr. Patrick Fleming is a dermatologist in private practice in Ontario. He is on the editorial board of both JCMS and the Canadian Derm Foundation. Dr. Fleming and his colleagues gave us a very nice overview of the guidelines and one thing that stood out for me was that guidelines appear to be always behind the curve. And Dr. Fleming and his colleagues are urging us to not only make these living documents, but start to use patient-reported outcomes and actually get patients on guideline committees. And all of this, I'm sure, will add not only greater clinical relevance, but greater uh, clinical excellence in all of these guidelines that we will produce in the future. And so until next time, thank you for listening. And remember that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you obtain your podcasts. I'm Kirk Barber. Be good to each other.